0: Hello and welcome to this Blackwell Online podcast. My name is George Miller, and my guest today is Daisy Hay. Daisy has just published her first book, Young Romantics, in which she looks at how friendship, poetry and politics fused together in the intense relationships of the second generation of romantics, that of Byron, Shelley and Keats. In place of the familiar, tenacious cliché of the romantic poet, a solitary, tortured, isolated genius atop his craggy peak, she offers us multiple images of the romantics as communicative, gossipy, excitable, political, above all, supremely sociable, as they sit together around the table, or go travelling, or indeed, and this was far from uncommon, actually move in together. Daisy is interested in the light this approach casts on the creative process, be it Byron's Verses, or Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, perhaps the epitome of romantic creative collaboration. And she also has fascinating things to say about the role of women in these close-knit romantic circles. Before we got on to that, I began by asking Daisy about a figure who is much less known today, but in his own time was seen as absolutely central to the whole group, Lee Hunt. Daisy takes up his story in 1813.
1: Well, Lee Hunt is, in 1813, the editor of a newspaper called The Examiner, which is the leading liberal periodical of the day. And I've been trying to think about whether there's a sort of contemporary equivalent, and I can't really think of one, possibly something a bit like The Independent just when it started, but really much more radical. So The Examiner took as its motto, party is the madness of the many for the gain of a few. And it was so independent it wouldn't accept advertisements. And it's founded in 1808 by Lee Hunt and his brother John. And it makes Lee Hunt, who writes the paper's editorial leader each week, into a liberal celebrity. Throughout the first four years of The Examiner's existence, the Hunts work hard to expose corruption wherever they see it. And this gets them into trouble. So there are libel actions against them. And they successfully defeat three libel actions between 1808 and 1812. But in 1812, their luck comes to an end when Lee Hunt writes an editorial which is fantastically rude about the Prince Regent. So Hunt writes an editorial about him in which he describes him as a sort of fat, corrupt man who's managed to reach his 50th birthday without achieving anything. This puts him and his brother in the dock for libel. And on this particular occasion, the Attorney General and the trial judge are absolutely determined that there is going to be a guilty verdict. So they pack the jury with men who are known to be sympathetic to the prosecution, and the Hunt's trial verdict is never in doubt, and off they go to prison. So my book starts with Lee Hunt starting his prison sentence in Surrey Jail in Southwark for two years. Two-year sentence and a fine of £500. But because Hunt is writing about his sentence every week in the examiner and writing about being in prison, he obviously causes a real problem for the prison authorities. He's not very well. He's manifestly a kind of political prisoner. So they can't just have him sort of languishing in, in uncomfortable surroundings. So they agree to give him two rooms in the old prison infirmary, and they allow him to summon the decorators, which he duly does. And he turns these two rooms, which have a little bit of garden attached, into this kind of magical bower with rose-coloured wallpaper and Venetian blinds screening the barred windows and a piano and books and busts of writers, and everyone comes to visit him. So instead of thinking about Lee Hunt languishing in a prison cell, we have to think about him in 1813 at the centre of this extraordinary literary salon where people like Jeremy Bentham come and play Battledore and Shuttlecock in the garden and people like Byron come to visit What comes out of those two years in Surrey Jail is Hunt's philosophy of sociability, which is broadly the idea that a group of friends can band together to talk about reform and to write about reform, and that that has a political aim, and that's a political act, because the government can suspend habeas corpus and send journalists to prison. But as long as you and your friends are talking about liberal ideals, nothing can prevent their gradual spread. So friendship becomes politically significant for Hunt and his friends. And that's a really, really important idea. It subsequently becomes poetically significant too, because Hunt takes the view that you can reform Romanticism, you can reform poetry by writing by being inspired by your friends by your own surroundings. So friendship brings together poetry and politics. And as well as that, Shelley is following the example of the first generation of romantic writers intimately concerned with questions about how poetry can be something which is can be a vehicle for reformation how you can use it to cure a corrupt society of its ills so friendship and politics and poetry all become linked in complex and interesting ways in those years at surrey jail
0: and that sociability and engagement is very much not the kind of image of the romantic poet that has been bequeathed to us Mm -hmm. is
1: it it's not no and well of course it's certainly the case that in recent years in sort of in academic circles the myth of the solitary romantic artist has been fairly well exploded that myth culturally still holds real sway and it still holds real sway in all sorts of areas of our life so the way we think about genius and what genius looks like when we think about what it might what a romantic poet looks like it's much more likely I think to look in the popular imagination like a kind of figure on a clifftop, than it has to look like a group of friends around a piano or around a, a fireside. But that's partly because this image of isolated creativity comes out of the Romantics' poetry. It comes out of poems like The Last Door by Shelley. It comes out of poems like Endymion by Keats or *Child Harold's Pilgrimage by Byron. So they create it, and they create this image of, of the artist, but yet there's a real disjunction between that image and the way in which they live there their own lives and I'm very interested in that tension between solitude and sociability as the impulses for poetry and for literary creativity.
0: I suppose in a a group biography there is no single catalytic moment but it seemed to me that there was great significance in the moment where Shelley meets Mary Godwin and Mm. that that relationship is, is absolutely central to the story you tell.
1: Well, they meet in the summer of 1814 because by the summer of 1814, Shelley has become great friends with Mary's father, William Godwin, who is the godfather of English political radicalism, revolutionary ideas. And Mary and Shelley haven't met until that point because Mary has been away in Scotland. But she returns to London in the early summer of 1814 at the time at which Shelley's marriage to Harriet Westbrook, his young wife. Is really rapidly unravelling. And when he meets Mary, he is absolutely smitten by her. And he later tells a friend that, you know, he says, How deeply did I not feel my inferiority? He's just never met anyone like her. She's very beautiful. She's very, very, very clever. I mean, she's more brilliant than any other woman Shelley has ever met. She sort of has this air of faint reserve. She keeps her, you know, her ideas to herself, but yet she opens up her, this passionate inner self to Shelley. And crucially, she is the daughter of William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft. So she represents a sort of revolutionary ideal. And she's 16. And you can see it in the letters. It's a sort of life-changing moment for him and for her too. So they fall rapidly in love and they steal away for walks. And on the graveyard, near Wollstonecraft's grave, at the um, graveyard at St Pancras Church, she declares her love for him. Watched by her sister Claire, who at this stage is called Jane Claremont. And things move very rapidly from there. William Godwin is furious because although he sort of preaches that marriage is a bad idea in political justice, it turns out that by 1814 that doesn't really apply to his own daughter. Things all get rather dramatic. And in July 1814, Shelley and Mary and Claire all elope to France.
0: You mentioned that that three of them elope, and it's another significant attribute of the book that there are several ménage à trois Mm. in it. There's Shelley's with Mary and her stepsister. There's also Lee Hunt's with his wife and her sister. Mm. And the the whole idea of free love is clearly one that's that's in the air and and being hotly debated.
1: Mm. Yes, that's quite true. The phrase free love is in fact something which doesn't really get used about the group or about this mode of behaviour until much later in the 19th century. But you can see in something like Shelley's notes to Queen Mab that the idea that young that people should throw aside the sort of constricting boundaries of social convention is something which someone like Shelley is trying to live out in his own life. So at the heart of the story I to- tell are these two families. Shelley and Mary and Claire and Hunt and Marianne and Bess. The, the symmetry between those two groups really interests me, because there are two ways of looking at the group. One is that you can put Shelley and Hunt at the centre, in which case you get a story about poetry and political idealism and a sort of, you know, story and about a story about creativity. Or you can put Claire and Bess at the center, at which point you get a much darker story about the consequences of some of those ideas. And I've tried to move between those four axes to sort of draw out some of the complexities. But it seems clear that for Hunt, for example, it's more complicated with the Shelley's, but for Hunt, Marianne and Bess come to represent very different things. So Marianne is a sort of figure of his private hearth, you know, his his fireside, things which are very, very important to him, important to his politics and his poetry, as I said. But Bess is a sort of public, some, someone with, via whom he can engage with the world. You know, she accompanies him to parties and she negotiates with his publishers. So it's as if the public and private that he needs in his life are represented by the two of them in separate ways. With Shelley and Mary and Claire, it's much more complicated, partly because the relationships between authorism of them are somehow much more contested and much more difficult, and they change much more, and there is of course a huge complication that in the spring of 1816, Claire becomes pregnant by Byron.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, hard, it's hard not to draw the conclusion that free love in an era where there was no reliable contraception and where medic- medicine was very rudimentary wasn't, wasn't such a blessing for, for women.
1: That's certainly true. Claire talks in her 70s to a, young, to a man called Edward Silsby when she's living in Florence. And so that's how we know quite a lot of the things that she, um, she thought about her past, because he wrote them all down. And Silsby records Clare saying at one point that Mary, during the spring of 1815, came into her room crying and said, Shelley wants me to sleep with Hogg. He says that Beaumont and Fletcher had one mistress. So there's a moment there where we can see some of the consequences that you're talking about, about free love. And it's certainly true that women, the women have unwanted pregnancies and illegitimate children and feel the consequences much more acutely and that results in the case of Fanny Imlay, Mary Shelley's half-sister, and Harriet Westbrook, Shelley's wife, in suicide. Having said that though, I do think that it's important to understand the decisions that Mary and Claire take in particular in the context of their desire for independence. So Claire sees that by running off with Shelley and by separating herself from her family unit, Mary essentially manages to make for herself an independent life. You know, with a, a family and a home, and then this you know writing that begins. So I think we have to look at Claire's decision to throw herself at Byron, not just as sort of an example of female victimhood, but as a act which she self-consciously engages in in order to try and win her own independence to put herself at the centre of her story rather than to continue being a kind of hanger-on in Mary and Shelley's story
0: Now I suppose one particular period when you see this sociability and creativity in action is the famous summer of 1816 Mm. where Byron and Shelley and and Mary and various other people were in a villa on Lake Geneva What What did you want to bring to your account of this of this quite famous summer?
1: You're quite right, it's extremely famous. It's been written about many times before. And it's very famous, partly because they were all there and partly because it's the summer in which Mary Shelley starts Frankenstein. There are two things, really, that I wanted to bring to my account. One of which is that the chains of intellectual allegiance that develop there are really, really striking, so people often write about it, but I wanted to write about it in terms of, you know, what happens to Byron's third canto of Child Harold's Pilgrimage, in which he says later to someone who says that in that summer, Shelley dosed me with Wordsworth physic, even to nausea. So I wanted to bring to the fore the way in which being with Shelley and being in Geneva has a real impact on Byron's poems, poetry, an impact you can actually see if you look at the different drafts of his manuscripts. The second thing I wanted to do is I wanted to write about Frankenstein. I wanted to write about this collaborative moment when, out of An Evening of Ghost Stories, Mary Shelley conceives the idea for Frankenstein, a novel which she subsequently writes and then Shelley edits. Because the story of the creation of Frankenstein has often been told in the past in terms of either patriarchal oppression, so Shelley imposes his views on his wife's manuscript and it's an act of domination, or it's been told as a story about co-authorship. Frankenstein's only good because Shelley got his act together and rewrote it. I wanted to suggest that the collaborative engagement between Shelley and Mary on that novel is much more equitable and much more engaged and incisive, and that it tells us something about romantic sociability and about romantic collaboration, which is that it really works, and that, in fact, that shows both of them at their best Editing each other's work, understanding each other's work, talking about each other's work. So I wanted, in my account of that summer, to reposition Frankenstein as a sort of celebration of sociability and collaboration in the way it's written, and about in the way Mary Shelley subsequently positions it, rather than as a contested document and novel.
0: Why, after Shelley's death, did Mary really refashion Shelley's image? As the, as the solitary romantic genius when she had herself been part of, so intimately connected mm. with this circle and benefited from and contributed to this kind of collaboration and, and mm. creativity. Was that, was that the only way in which she could isolate and accentuate his genius posthumously?
1: That's certainly something she was very concerned about doing. Partly it happens, though, because of the figure of Lee Hunt. Because after Shelley's death, Lee Hunt and Mary Shelley engage in something of a battle about who should be the keeper of the flame, about who has the right to shape Shelley's posthumous legacy. Hunt is absolutely devoted to Shelley and devastated by his death. And he begins to write a series of autobiographical accounts in which he positions Shelley as his friend and in which he positions Shelley as part of his world. And in 1828, he publishes the most extensive of those accounts, which is a book called Lord Baron and Some of His Contemporaries. The problem is Hunt is in that fantastic mood about Byron with whom he's fallen out after Shelley's death and he's absolutely savaged by the critics. They just cannot believe that he could be so vulgar as to criticise someone who's dead and an aristocrat. So Hunt therefore really becomes tainted goods and Mary Shelley is absolutely determined to make Shelley into a genius. That People should realise Shelley is a genius for two reasons. One, because she's devoted to his memory and she feels guilt about their last few weeks and months together and she's determined to sort of make reparations to him by celebrating his poetry. And secondly, because she has to survive. She's living on very little money. She has a child to bring up. Her survival is dependent on being able to write and to rehabilitate her own reputation and the name of Shelley and being able to throw off the sort of scandalous elements of her own past. So the way to strip Shelley of a problematic, sociable context because of Hunt and a political context and a religious context because of the atheism is just to sort of distance him from all that and present him as a man who is very concerned about the well-being of his fellow men but is somehow slightly removed from them, too clever for them. So it comes out of these twin impulses, I think.
0: I want to come back to Claire Claremont, whom you've, you've talked a little bit about before because she, in many ways, is pivotal and a fascinating figure. From what you were saying before and from the way you present in the book, she was, she was much more than than a victim. Mm. Some of the other women in the book, you might, I suppose, characterise as victims, their their, their agency and their um, ability to influence their own fates were limited. But, but she, she's quite different from that, isn't she?
1: She is. And she has a very, very strong sense of how she wants her own life to be told and how she wants her own life to be seen. And one of the things I became very interested in was in the way in which... Although she doesn't write long autobiographical things in her old days, you can still sort of construct what Claire's memoir might have looked like because she talks to Edward Sillsby and she writes long letters to people about her past. She clearly has a very complicated reaction with her past, partly because she's absolutely clear that Shelley and Mary and Byron are sort of the, you know they're the most important people and the central events of her life; that they are the major thing about her history. She understands that. But she also understands, because she experiences it, how dangerous that is. So when, in 1826, she's working as a governess in Moscow, when it's found out that she's related to the Shelleys and the Goblins, she loses her job. So she really understands what it's like to be tainted by you know, one's past. And, of course, she has an illegitimate daughter by Baron Allegra, who dies aged five in a convent. So Claire never forgives Baron for the sort of destruction he causes in her life. And one of the things I found while I was writing the book was a bit of a fragment of a memoir, which hasn't been published before and which is in the book, in which she describes Shelley and Byron as monsters and tigers and monsters of lying, meanness, treachery and cruelty. And it's striking that she should be rude about Shelley because although she's very rude about Byron, she's not really rude about Shelley anywhere else. Not only is she rude about Shelley in that bit of autobiography... She's read about Shelley in his own language. She takes the language of the marriage note to Queen Mab and she turns it against him to destroy this sort of ideal of free love. So she's a very intriguing character, but I didn't quite fall for her. Some biographers have said they fell for her. Richard Holmes says at one point, I fell in love with Claire Claremont. I did, perhaps because I'm an older sister, I had a slightly more complicated relationship with her. I think she's a fascinating character, but you can really see how disruptive a presence she was in the Shelley's lives too.
0: With a biography of a single person, of course, the death, I suppose, marks the end of the, of the main story. But how, when you're writing a group biography, how, how, do you, how do you know when your story, as it were, has, has reached its conclusion?
1: Well, it's a very good question, and it's one I really struggled with, with you know, how to end. But I felt like I always wanted to tell the story of what happens to the group, because the group really has, you know, it forms and then it it is. But there is also a story about what happens to it in popular imagination. And I wanted to try and understand why it is that Hunt's vision of a sort of sociable romanticism has disappeared so completely from our public, popular consciousness. And so that's really where I felt I wanted to end the story, that the story of the group doesn't end with death of Shelley or Keats or Byron. It ends at the point at which it comes apart in the popular imagination. So the final section of the book is about what happens after the deaths of Shelley and Keats, and is about how the members, the people who are left from the kind of ash cast of history, particularly the women, sort of try and remake their lives and try and come to terms with their own complicated pasts.
0: Daisy Hay. Young Romantics, The Shelleys, Byron and Other Tangled Lives is out now in hardback. Full details and ordering information are available on the Blackwell Online website at blackwell.co.uk. That's all for
1: this edition of the Blackwell Online podcast. So until next time, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.